Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Fancy to see you recording here again directly after that very long episode we just did. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How about yourself? A little bit beleaguered. That was quite the undertaking to do the best of the year so far before this one. Uh, came in at a couple hours. I'm definitely feeling the uh, exhaustion level from that, but I hope I can turn it back on and get excited to talk about Jenna Rollins and this lovely John Cassavetes film on a very short turnaround rescreening week. That's right. We're talking about A Woman Under the Influence, a film that I think both of us had, uh, or that neither of us had seen before. Correct. Picking it for this topic of discussion. Should we do a first impression of uh, what we have coming up on our next rescreening episode, though, before we dive in? Yeah. Our next title is Yo Jimbo. Let's take a look. Alright, Michael, that was the trailer for Yo Jimbo, Akira Kurosawa's Film starring Tashune Mifune. Tashira Mifune, I think that's right. What do you think of that trailer and uh, what we're about to get up to? I'm very much looking forward to it. I don't think we've ever talked about Kurosawa on the show before. Not once. Uh, Right? A pretty canonical filmmaker that we've never really touched on. Um, Yojimbo is not one I've seen before. I feel like you always hear it talked about for the resemblance to westerns and spaghetti westerns and that kind of thing we might have actually t- talked about it or brought it up briefly when we talked about once upon a time in the west we did. is that right that's yep. why that's ringing a bell as i was saying that um see a handful of kurosawas um uh, a handful of which star toshiro mafune i think he's a pretty much a regular for kurosawa uh i think he's great um do you think uh one of the famous characterizations that kurosawa had himself about mifune was that he described him as a wolf on the loose which is a description i always kind of liked it's a certain kind of wildness about him that he actually feels a little bit more tame here um i think it looks great i'm stoked what about you yeah i echo that sentiment reminds me of um or it it makes me think that perhaps mifune was like an influence on who clint eastwood tried to be Mm. Uh, as a performer, I, I think there's a very direct similarity in what I was seeing in, like, the the solitary, like, uh, guy just wandering around kind of being silent and looking strong mm. type of a thing. Um, if it looks comedic, it is from one of the most acclaimed filmmakers of all time who's probably been as influential as any other filmmaker aside from Edison or, you know, the Lumiere brothers or something like that. Like, he... He's really 
someone who's influenced the style and plot and look of pop culture and also pieces of cinephilia. He's had influences from Tarantino to Lucas. So I'm, I'm very excited to dig into uh, blind spot for me with him. Um, and we'll do that next month. I like the Clint Eastwood comparison because there's definitely just like the strong silent type that you could, I, I could totally see Clint Eastwood having maybe picked up from him, but also like, Clint Eastwood in old age when he groans it's almost like he is growling sometimes mm-hmm. uh, which definitely fits with that wolfish uh, characterization of Buffune that's kind of funny I like it <laughs> alright on to a woman under the influence alright I'll say it I still think you're a son of a bitch for putting her away if you send her away you could have picked her up it is too much now this is a big chance you go my mother. I know what your mother is. Let me into the phone. Let me into the phone. Hello. Hi, Mama. All right, Michael. This is a film written and directed by John Cassavetes, starring his beautiful wife, Jenna Rollins, and his best friend in the world, according to him, Peter Falk. All three of them uh, co-financed the film out of their own pocket. I believe, anecdotally, I heard it shot for a total of $800,000. What do you think about the journey that is a woman under the influence? I thought this movie was extraordinary. I loved it. I've seen a handful of other Cassavetes movies, Husbands, Faces, Opening Night. This is, I, I feel pretty confident saying this is my favorite Cassavetes film so far probably followed by opening night um i think these are just some towering performances b- between falk and rollins especially rollins um but i like this movie movie pretty much from top to bottom i'll start there how about you i also love this film it is an exhaustive film it's an uh unorthodox film and it, it kind of has two swells i i don't even know that i'd say it's a two-act play so much is it's like a storm that has two swells to the the storm you know it's like the storm coming in and then the storm kind of leaving and everything's kind of the same before and after except for when the storm was there um and maybe the people are changed by the storm but the the look of the place is the same after it's passed and everybody's picked up the pieces it's a it's a very interesting um dramatic play in that sense it's terrifically performed it's got a wonderful sense of place i think the score is very stripped back it's very uh i hate to use unorthodox continuously but it's really not the polished thing that you would see in another film from this point in time um you later hear in the commentary if you listen to the commentary that um john would constantly say no we're gonna we're gonna keep the demo tape you did we're gonna run the Mm. demo tape for the for the soundtrack rather than having you go record that in a professional setting with a bunch of talented paid instrumentalists we're just gonna we're gonna stick with you singing and you playing the piano which you just learned how to play two weeks ago we're gonna stick with that (laughs) that yeah that i didn't know like that it's okay so he was interested in keeping the the demos, not the refined the polished versions of the tracks they, they would go through and kind of do rough drafts and then um, constantly John John would say yeah but can, can I just hear the original one more oh, mm. but don't you love that 
you gotta love that. We gotta, we gotta love that. We gotta keep that in there. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like that fits with his kind of overall aesthetic. I don't think these are original adjectives by any means, but you know, just the rawness of uh, the performances, the emotion that all just feels very kind of unfiltered or unpolished. Um, the idea that there's no. Um, there's there's no layer uh between you and just the purity of the emotion that changes just like every second as these uh actors go through their emotions um you want something that is really uh original and immediate and very urgent and that's all uh, pretty incredibly well done it's nice to be on this side of history um there's a, a booklet that came with the cassavetes um, box set in, in which there's a couple different, um, you know, supplements to all the different films within the box set. Um, normally it's an interview and a, and a critical, um, section and the, the review for this film, um, really put into light the previous history of Cassavetes, which, you know, in 2021, I'm totally unaware of. But as he was coming out, apparently he was kind of universally panned and called just like a an actor's playhouse dramatist that didn't even know how to direct. And, um, you know, this is one of those films along his trajectory that really started to make the critics, the large amount of critics who said that look like total doofuses. Mm. And I, I think it's very nice that I can be on this side of history because uh, I, I watched... Um, think shadows and i watched mikey and nikki which he was in and mm. was made by elaine may right um not him but there, i've definitely watched a few projects from him that i did not personally care for but mm. there's a lot from him that i have liked and i'm i'm glad to know his entire arc because i could easily see myself um really being um frustrated if i'd only been familiar with some of his films that i didn't respond more strongly to because i do think that some of the criticisms leveled at him are not um, vapid. I think there is something there, but I, I think that when he hits, his in, intuition and his instincts make up for any failing. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think I remember maybe saying this when we did our first impression of a woman under the influence. I think some of them are can be a little tough to access. I remember feeling that way a little bit with faces. Um uh, the sort of lack of, you know, kind of a traditional narrative structure there almost made it just a little tough for me to kind of kind of find my find my way into that movie, even though it is similarly raw and kind of volatile, um, and that's striking. Um, I think there is um, uh, kind of an emotional core to this one. There is a real kind of emotional focal point between our leads, Mabel and Nick Longetti, Peter Falcon and General Rollins. That's um, a little easier to um, latch onto, for lack of a better word. It's definitely easier to latch onto, but there's there's some long sequences here where you you just kind of don't know what exactly is happening, and you don't know how to watch it because you don't know really what you're watching because what you're watching isn't really a genre so much as a depiction of uh, fictional documentarianism. Really. It's, it's Cassavetti's trying to come up with something that these players can treat as real and then him trying to capture them inhabiting it being as real as they can instead of having a three-act play and, and a you know a Chekhov's pistol sitting on the mantle mm. it's 
you you really don't know quite what you're in for or really what is going on with Mabel until I think fairly far into the film. Maybe you had better sensibilities than me, but I don't think that I was confident that she was different on like, you know, substantially different until the asking for time scene when she was going to pick her kids up on the bus. Oh yeah. And those, um, those uptown girls that are dressed very fancy and, you know, literally won't stop to give her the time of day when she's dealing with them. That's, and she starts going and she's making these, uh, fart noises and kind of blowing her raspberries and Mm. then, um, throwing her thumb up in the air, um, at the end of a fist you really start to get the sense that she's um, socially different. You don't really know how, or, or you, and at the end of the film, you don't know either, but that's the first time that I really knew that something was deeper there. And um, I, I think that there's a, an important question about this film that I, I wanted to ask you a little bit earlier, but I will ask mm. now. This film is called A Woman Under the Influence. Mm. What is she under the influence of? That's a good question. Uh, I might have to sit on that for a bit of more of our conversation to see if I can come up with a, a good answer to that. Do you have something already? I have a few different things. I, yeah. I think that it's more what is she not under the influence of? She's under the influence of society and sociological norms and behaving in a certain way. And, you know, the fact that she is herself and everybody else has seen her be herself in a a society where people are not themselves publicly or Mm -hmm. socially really ever. Um, You know, she stands out like a a sore thumb. And then she's also under the influence of um, uh, John's actual mother who's playing peter falk's mother in the film mm, mm-hmm. um he, she's under the influence of her mother-in-law you know get her out she's crazy mm-hmm. um she's under the influence of peter falk a man who literally commits her she's under his influence that is the the straw that kind of breaks their relationship in a lot of ways um She's under the influence of having kids and being a different person. She's under the influence of all these different things. Um, I, I don't really think that it ever ends, right? Because she's she's also behaving as um, the wife, not just to, to Falk, but she's hosting these big dinners, you know. And um, in the commentary, you find out that that dinner scene in the beginning that they have, that big spaghetti dinner scene, that was what they would do when they were done shooting. They would do the same exact mm. thing. They would have these spaghetti dinners because they couldn't afford anything else. They had to feed everybody. And the spaghetti that they were eating was actually, for the people that ate it, that was their meal. And then everybody who was working, you know, would have their own meal after that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, if there's anything I like about this movie, it may be Cassavetes in general. is just his tendency to... Or his the fact that he's less interested in trying to explain human behavior than he is in just trying to capture and observe it, um, and uh, I think there are things about these kind of uh, th- this couple social background that that tell us why they might behave the way that they do. You know, they're in this kind of Italian working class. Um, milieu that i think would bring about you know maybe some certain expectations around masculinity for sure right and the kind of control that 
uh, Nick seems to want to have in this relationship, which is um, a tough thing to exercise when you have someone who is so slippery in their emotions and all over the place. I think he's um, uh, often quite frustrated by that. But, you know, I don't think uh, Cassavetes is, is as interested in kind of uh, a cause and effect kind of psychological storytelling as much as he is in just bringing it to life with as much immediacy as he can um, and um, sort of uh, discouraging judgment one way or the other. He kind of lets us um, evaluate each of them as romantic partners and as parents to these kids. Um, and, you know, it's just something about, like, the liveliness of the of the movie and how combustible the, the situation feels. Um because I feel like they're unstable in two very different ways. You know, she is psychologically unstable, but I would think you could argue he is temperamentally unstable. And when you get two people like that together, they can kind of find balance. I don't, I don't think it's arguably. I think he literally says, I will kill you and the kids. There you go. I'm pretty sure he says that. <laughs> there you go. Um, and yeah, I think uh, that's just a situation that uh, invites a, a kind of domestic disaster um when that balance gets out of whack um yeah it's great stuff i want everybody to have a good time why aren't you having a good time have a good time yeah yeah that's that's where he's coming at it from um you know he's kind of like this guy who can't um adapt he's he's trying to pursue this ideal version of happiness but He's not willing to let happiness be anything other than this um, idyllic version that he has. And since it will never reach that, he's just constantly frustrated and emasculated by it because it's this thing that he decided he wants and he can't admit that he failed or anything like that. And then Mabel, um, you know, she's kind of balancing being his lover, his love interest, and like the version that they were with being this mother who like dotes and loves her children completely and you know there's that scene where uh he doesn't come home and her mom her actual mom and her mom in the film takes the kids and she goes and picks up a guy at a bar but doesn't really realize what she's doing and you know that just really speaks to like her her childishness of not having become an an adult parenting woman and still kind of being in this uh, laissez-faire stage where you can go pick up guys at a bar and not think twice about it. Um, it really just underlines the separation of mentality between them. And on, also, I think that that comparative underlines that neither of them is innocent, but one of them is powerful and mm. one of them is not powerful in the social situation. And I think that that's why the title is so important, A Woman Under the Influence, because Mabel doesn't get to just blow a raspberry and walk out the door. She is beholden to what her husband decides will happen to her. And um, the regret that Falk comes to seem to have at, at that um, is very interesting. You know, the, the beach day scene is very interesting. Hmm. You know, that line, just have a good time. I want everybody to have a good time. Why aren't you having a good time? Yeah, um... Yeah, yeah, her instability is far less far less accepted than than his is. Uh, you know, I mean, 
he, he is the one giving those death threats. He is the one getting the kids liquored up when he has them on his own. That was a fun um, beach day. They, oh, I, th- I think the kids had a great time. There's no doubt about that. They got hammered. That was a real beer. <laughs> they were convincing. The great, actual great child performances for sure. I, I think these kids are really good. Uh, she, she is uh, volatile, but you know, arguably a really great mom. I love when she's getting ready. She's kind of getting the kids into the car with her mom, and she says something so seriously, where she's like, "If anything happens." anything comes up you call me you call me mm-hmm. um she cares so much about her kids she's so excited to pick them up from the bus um and uh then of course you know when falk erupts at the table everyone just sits there and just stares at their plates because that's uh this kind of more culturally accepted kind of uh outburst um versus the the, the little flights of fancy that she has that people uh think necessitates institutionalization or whatever uh yeah pretty interesting little uh uh social world here yeah it's um underlined by its realism though like it it just feels like a real thing that really happened to real people that really lived this type of life um I love the dining room and how it becomes the bedroom and that they have to fold Mm, out mm -hmm their actual marital bed from a couch and that the kids have their bedrooms upstairs but you know the the parents the the husband and wife you know in the same room that they're making their family in they're also hosting their friends and families for dinner um it's a really interesting thing i i I don't really know what to do with it so far as be fascinated and enamored with it and just keep um you know, circling that that well of just depth of that room meaning so much and kind of also being the original place where all this embarrassment happens for each character. Yeah, the house and the, the, the sense of space you get within that room from like the foyer just as soon as you kind of step into the house, there's the living room off to the right when you would be coming in and then that room you're describing off to the left like you, you get such a clear kind of sense of that space and like the way you know people are just kind of arranged in those rooms throughout shots um is 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 really realistic but also with these moments of poetry that that, that come as a surprise you know you'll be watching something from a, from a few steps back and then he cuts in close kind of unexpectedly um i think one of the more striking ones is towards the end where you see Folk kind of pull her off to the side and we see him in like in silhouette as he's trying to uh, get her to start doing all those old mannerisms again after mm-hmm. she has come back from the institution. Again. Come on. Yeah. Another great instance of his want, want of control. He wants to be able to, to, to turn this on and off when he wishes. Um, but then the camera pulls back and we're just kind of in this room again. Um, a sense of space and distance between people in these rooms is really, really something. I think his use of um, static cameras also, because the the focus isn't really being pulled, and when it is, it's not pulled quickly. So these actors are going in and out of focus as they're walking, and it's you know it, it's kind of reflective of the piece itself. You know, there's I I don't know that I'm right, but 
I get the sense, you know, when they're going in and out of focus, it's just like the thoughts that they're thinking as they're trying to come up with what they're trying to say to explain something to Mabel or to have a conversation with someone else or to con- for um, Nick to convince John's mom, his mom in the film, you know, that she's fine. She doesn't need to be institutionalized. Um, there's, there's just a great um, sense of humanity that comes with people going in and out of the focus here. I think it's equally mirrored when John himself picks up the camera and does handheld shots. I think it's with an Ari and he's, he's really fluidly moving the camera back and forth in only dialogue sequences. He never shoots action with this handheld camera. The handheld camera is exclusively used for these conversations, which adds this frenetic sense of communicativeness and um, the sense that anything can really happen in this high stakes exchange of language where the outcome of your life depends on words. Yeah. Uh, Slight change of topic, but related is just some of the some of the color in this movie i'm sure it's been restored i don't think i saw any notes right off the bat as this film started but it's a you know very clean looking uh film at least the one that's on criterion and, and that kind of thing uh but just man some of the color in this movie that really pops you know nick has that like varsity jacket he wears and this little kind of like floppy hat with these blues that really pop uh you know when, whenever we see him on his truck going to or from work, whether it's with the kids or not, there's it's like this fire truck red that just pops right out the screen. Um, Mabel wears this like bright blue and yellow robe. Um, it's all this kind of like, you know, very lived in working class realism, but with these real kind of rich pops of color that look really, really beautiful. Um, definitely one of my best or one of my uh, what well, it is one of his best looking movies, I think, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of distinctive looks to it that I like, um, but I I mean, he did Gloria, which I think is just a stunning film to look at. Chinese Bookie, I think, is terrific as a film and also beautiful to look at with its nighttime cinematography and its inky streets to quote you on Thief. Um, yeah, I, I can't speak to that because I haven't seen all the other films that you've seen, and I, I gather that he definitely did go through a brief like formula evolution here. And I'm talking about a lot of his later films. Bookie immediately comes after this film um, with a lot Mm. of the same team. And Gloria is in 1980. Um, But I mean, you got to linger a little bit more on Jenna playing um, someone who in the film actually looks like she's losing her mind. And just the, the talent that goes into that, like how how often do you see an actress that makes you question if this is a documentary film and they are in fact going crazy? Mm-hmm. Like I love Claire Foy and Unsane, but I always knew she was performing. Mm-hmm. Here, I I wasn't always certain. Yeah, I mean there is just like a a certain speed at which. Mabel seems to be kind of going from one headspace to another, from one emotion to another. Um, you just kind of see it in like her, like the way she kind of darts her eyes. There's just kind of a frantic kind of nervous energy she carries that just gives you that sense of mental instability that is just so authentic. It, it is not actorly. Um, it seems, yeah, I mean, you can only use the word real or realistic so many times, but 
there are only so many words that convey that. So yeah, no, you're totally right. Nervous. That's exactly what she is. She's constantly evoking the sense of nervousness. And I think that Falk is constantly kind of trying to keep a lid on anger and Mm -hmm. what it is that he's angry about and, you know, what he's owed is what's interesting. And then for her, it's, it's, you know, all these different ways that she is showing her nervousness and all these different thoughts that she has in her head. And then when, when she goes to pick her kids up from school, you get the sense that she's been thinking about this all day, that that was like an anxiety that she had a nervousness that she had all day about how her kids were. Um, There's a scene that I don't think I've ever seen in a film here where they come home to get the kids books. uh, They being Mm. Jenna Rowland's mother in the film and in real life and the kids and they don't realize anyone's home. And this is their first time that they've spent some alone time together in bed. And it's kind of this confrontation scene and it ends up with Falk bringing everyone onto the bed whistling. Mm-hmm. And when I say everyone, he even forces Jenna's mom onto the bed, which in the commentary you find out she was very upset with mm-hmm. and was totally against and they forced her to do it anyways. And it's just the whole family on the um, maritable the, mm-hmm. the marital bed of this this group. And it, it's just like, what do you even do with that? It's so human and it's it's. It's so not Hollywood. It feels so real, so tangible, so sticky. So impulsive. Like, I don't think, I don't know that I I knew what he even wanted to do in this situation. It seems like just such a spontaneous choice to just grab her mom and yank her onto the bed. I don't think he even knows where he's going with this. He just thinks it's going to be a funny family moment or something like that. And it I kind think, of is I, a funny moment. I think moment. it underlines exactly what we we're talking about. The idea of want and control over happiness from mm. Falk, because Falk's the, you know, it's all against Jenna's will. And we're, we're mm-hmm. seeing Jenna be ignored when she says that she doesn't want that. And simultaneously, we're seeing that this is Falk's idea of happiness and forcing it on everybody and making everyone come here against their will and mm-hmm. do this thing that he wants to do. And to the side, we see how upset Jenna is. Yeah, I, I just remembered that I think I probably I think I stole the word nervous from one of the kids because there's that moment where she Mabel had just picked up the kids from the bus and she asks them before going in the house. Do you guys think I'm dopey or loopy or mm-hmm. whatever like that? And he says, no, you're beautiful. You're nervous, but you're pretty and beautiful and smart. So I, I think I think that's maybe where that word came from. Um, I, but I like that she we get that scene where she asks them and and the evidence that she has some degree of self-awareness of Interior. of how she's perceived and um yeah whether or not this behavior her behavior is any different from everybody else um but she's mostly she's most concerned about what her kids think um which is you know just makes it all that more heartbreaking i think this is a woman who really does deeply love her kids for sure um yeah I think she deeply loves her husband, too, and deeply cares. And that's, you know, we kind of glossed over it, but the the introduction of the film is is her going to this great length with with her mother to get all the kids out so that she can, um, you know, have a memorable night with her husband. And uh, him coming up with what appears, the way that it's explained, to be another excuse for why he can't come home on another night. Mm -hmm. And... 
the way that she takes that, you know, by going into the bar we kind of talked about, but, you know, you really get the sense that she is, um, I, I don't know that I'd say being gaslit, but she's not living the life that she agreed to mm-hmm. or that she even agreed to that morning with her husband and that it's a repetitive thing where she has an understanding and then the understanding is revoked against her will without her consultation and the the slow um, state of, of anxiety and madness that would cause someone, you know, even, you know, now is, is tremendous. Like if you agree to do something and it falls apart once, okay, twice, bummer, three times, annoying, but when it's years, the, the way that that affects you and, and your confidence and your humanity, you know, that's kind of what you start to get at play here. And the fact that he doesn't take any ownership ever, and even at the end, he's trying to force her to make him happy to be herself the way that he remembers her um, in his way, not her way. It's there, There's just so much depth of feeling and depth of humanity to this film. You can't really properly criticize it because it's a little bit too human and it's um, a little bit too perfectly flawed to even um, be bettered by any level of criticism in, in my reading of it. Yeah, you described the failed date night. I think one of the like most heartbreaking shots is her at the dining room table not long after he's called her and she has her feet up on the table. Yeah, totally. She just looks so disappointed. She's, you know, going to be okay, but she's so disappointed that it's just that expression. She does a lot with her face over the course of this movie. That's one of the like steadier moments, but it's so heartbreaking. And she, she clearly was so excited. Uh, that's, that hurts. Uh, but it's a really nice shot. Um, She's smoking her cigarette there, too. There's some beer cans on the table. It's a nice shot. Um, I like the detail with the guy that she brings home and the fact that the next morning he gets up a little bit before her and he's, like, reminding her who he is and he says, you know, I like to talk to myself in the morning. And we see him kind of, like, just wandering around and muttering to himself. Just another person in this movie who has... Another kind of weird tick in eccentricity, um, this idea that, you know, everyone has their own little weird ticks that might be crazy in some way. And there are just some that are more easily accepted than others um, is a nice little touch because uh, he's kind of an odd dude. He is kind of an odd dude. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how things that are ticks of social outcasts are depicted really just um plainly here and mm-hmm. without a real second thought which kind of you know gives you a look at what feels like a, an older time where you know there were a bunch of different types of people and different people had ticks and you know um for someone like me my uh dad grew up in a small town his parents lived in a small town and everybody kind of knew everybody and you know, there was a sense of, you know, that's just how that person is. They have this tick. Don't say this around them. You know, every, everybody just kind of has their own particulars. And, you know, there's other people in town that were saying the same thing about my family and particular things that you should or shouldn't say mm-hmm. around my grandfather or something. 
And you kind of get a another look at that where he just speaks about it plainly. You know, I like to talk to myself in the morning and then I like yeah. this type of toast and, you know, this is who I am. And he doesn't give it a second thought. And it also shows the disparity between her as a woman who's married and, you know, that she can't really say her peculiarities out loud because mm-hmm. of the judgment that comes with it, whereas he doesn't have to give it a second thought. It's this interesting underlined thing that I don't think Cassavetes wants to send us a message about so mm-hmm. much as show what is passively true about living life if you were really her. Yeah, totally. The The, the perspective is kind of nice because I feel like with many modern movies in which there is a you know, main character who is mentally unstable in one way or another, her perspective is usually aligned with everyone else, like a close family member or something like that. And that's usually the more sentimental approach. We kind of see through their eyes a loved one uh, struggle with some kind of mental illness. I feel like that's the more Oscar-y kind of thing. You also see something like the father, which I do like, but that's putting us in the mind of someone who's, you know... uh, mind is is breaking down a little bit mm-hmm. um but then i feel like this is the third option where i don't feel like we're we're really aligned with either perspective here we feel more like voyeurs just observing this from a third perspective um that seems sort of uninvolved um which is just nice because of that um non-judgmentalness that comes with that we're not really on Falk's side or her side we stick with Falk when she goes into the institution but i still don't really feel like i'm seeing the world through his eyes i feel like i'm watching him for sure yeah when we didn't go with her that was definitely a pulling point for me where i was like what is happening and then when you never go with her and then she's starting to come back it it's a totally different um way than i ever would have imagined the film going with someone who's going into a mental institution i really thought that john would have been in there with his handheld camera you know getting real close-up shots of padded walls and cells or people drooling or you know the Mm. the um administrative um bullshit that she was going through like i thought there was going to be that whole thrust and they just totally look away from it and basically exchange it for a beach day and a and a working day kind of like these really long sequences um so it, it kind of builds up and then the storm occurs and then the, the waves are kind of going out and you're just spending a couple days with him trying to force happiness on everyone and then her homecoming happens and for the first time in the film we see rain and mm-hmm. everybody comes over for a party once again the only time you ever see everybody come over for a party in a film and then leave before the party starts this is a, a very um, like it's not some this is not a film made up of things that you really see in other movies this is a film made up of human moments that john is searching to to expose and touch and spend time with his his friends and and his wife to to show something that means something to him but beyond that it's hard to really make sense of it other than say it has meaning and to keep looking at it and talking about it yeah you mentioned the you know, what, what it is that we see Nick doing when she is in the hospital and we don't follow her. We go to the beach. We see him at work. And 
that the moments that some moments that stand out there are when he gets into this little conflict with a coworker, mm-hmm. and they're up in this kind of ridge. You know, he's like a miner, or he's mm-hmm. kind of like a construction worker, but it looks like they're on this kind of rugged terrain, and it's a very ambiguous scene to me, at least, and it's editing because they're kind of having this this fight. It seems like they're maybe jostling each other, something like that, and the editing's you know very jumpy, so. You don't really have – I don't have a sense for the continuity in that scene. But then you see this coworker fall down the little hill, like a, little, a very rocky yeah, hill. Yeah, tumbling pretty tough. Yeah, but like what you can't really tell is right after Nick ducks under this rope, is is it something he did that caused this? Like, other, like I'm just not even sure what this scene is there for. I don't dislike it, but I did wonder if this is there as some ambiguous evidence of his own volatility literally causing harm for once, whereas Rowan's instability isn't really hurting anyone except for maybe herself in the end. Um, but it's very, it's really not clear to me whether or not he is at all at fault for that guy's uh, little tumble down the mountain. Yeah, it seemed totally ambiguous to me as well. I, I could not track it. I tried the second time to really pay attention, and I honestly don't know if he was even standing near him with the way that it's pretty hard with to the tell. truck in front. Yeah. Like, you can't tell if Falk is sitting in the truck yelling at him. Like it's, yeah. It, which is the way that I watched it the first time. The first time I thought he was in the truck, and then you never see him get out of the truck or, like, the door closing when he gets on the rope, and I was, well, wait a minute. What, what actually happened there? But I, I wanted to watch it in a continuity so when i rewatched it i kept close eye and no it's directly ambiguous i mm-hmm. if i was a betting man i would say that maybe um he originally wrote something violent and then pivoted to something that's passively um you know macabre and then um that falk in finality you know was just in a verbal argument and that caused this to happen which is really underlining the point of mm-hmm. the anger words actually having a volatile outcome, whereas Mabel doesn't. Yeah, I think it's way better for the way it is. I, I might be saying exactly what you just said, but yeah, had he literally underscored the point that he he produced a problem with this with his anger. Um, we can already plenty infer that that is a possibility given his temper. Um, so it's just not necessary. You can track the scene as closely as you want. I think it's pretty tough to tell. Yeah. Um, there's a couple other anecdotes that I, I found really interesting. When they're riding in the back with the kids drinking beer, um, the sound guy, because of the stripped nature of the film and how much money they didn't have, he literally was running wires up their pant legs. Mm. And for a long time, you can see the wires going up their pant legs for the bikes. Ah. And uh, he, he asked John to go in tight. And John goes, don't worry about it. There are ropes in the back of the truck. <laughs> I like it. That's funny. <laughs> Just kind of that maverick filmmaking. Like, that's not a problem. I'll tell you what those are. Those are ropes. And I can tell you the first time I watched it, I didn't even notice. Without the commentary, I would have totally escaped me. Yeah, in one of the other uh, bonus features, Falk talks about the very first scene in the movie uh, where, or maybe it's the second or third scene where he um, is, uh, Falk's character is at the construction site on the road at night. I think it's raining and they 
you know, I think they shot that first chronologically, even though it's not the literal first mm-hmm. scene. And um, the second after they yell action, Cassavetes yells cut and like runs over to Falk and says, put this on. And he put the hat on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he kept the hat on for the rest of the movie. And like the hat is like so a part of that character, the, the floppy little blue hat. Uh, I thought that was funny. Um, last second, he decided this is essential. And it is. <laughs> that, uh, that comes up in the interview with Cassavetes as well as the commentary. That, that hat is everywhere mm-hmm. in the supplemental material. It is definitely a hat that informs a certain type of class and like a, mm-hmm. the way that the, that man is conducting his life and how busy he is with working and you know, all that stuff. And maybe where he's coming at the world from in a, in a very clean way. I think that that's genius, pure genius by Cassavetes. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, for a film that's incredibly long, it's really hard to cut in and find a way of kind of defining different segments than what we've already mm-hmm. talked about. But I, I do think that the bigger segment that we have skirted around um, it without, you know, focusing on it is when the kids have a party. Mm. Um, this is kind of a crucial uh, sequence in that this is when the accusation of her being crazy really breeds out of what occurs uh, mm-hmm. This afternoon, after she picks the kids up um, from school to have a party, the friends of the kids come over. Uh, Mabel is hiding under the door to surprise them. And we proceed to the backyard where everyone's having a good time, listening to music, dancing. Well, ostensibly, everyone's having a good time besides uh, the father who mm-hmm. brought the children. And... That sequence where, I, I don't remember what the song is that comes on, but M- Mabel turns to her kids and says, you know, this is the song t- that you do the swan dying to. Die. Come on, everybody, die. It's mm-hmm. it's an incredible line, and it, it just kind of speaks to something that's unsaid in the film about um, the, the darker side of it, but the, the beauty and the darkness. Yeah, a really nice portrayal of how people are can just behave kind of uncertainly around you know someone who is who appears to them to be unstable Mm -hmm. um that guy is not you know outwardly cruel um uh, he's just sort of taken aback by her oddities um as she kind of like dances around i think it's swan lake i think that's the Mm -hmm. scene where swan lake comes on Um, and then he literally, I think he says like, you, you are behaving oddly. Um, and that's when he decides to take the kids away. Um, but yeah, just the fact that he doesn't come on too strong, um, seems just again, so, so, so convincing that that is just how that guy would react to this woman's behavior, um, is uh, entirely convincing. And entirely taken aback when she answers the door and he expects to be able to drop the kids off and get going, but she insists and all of a sudden you're standing in someone's backyard that you don't know while she's flitting around doing a ballet uh, swan death dance and having all the kids do it and applauding them. And it's it's a lot of things, but it's, um, I think, mostly memorable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just to, to add to your point about how it, it is a little tricky to, like, divvy this movie up into scenes, there is... 
kind of a sense that this feels like one big act or something like that. There are distinct mm-hmm. acts, but it all really kind of bleeds together for me. Um, uh, and that I guess that has to do with just sort of the feeling of it all being so spontaneous, so impulsive um, versus uh, a story with chapters or something like that. You know, documentaries don't always feel like they have um, easily divided sections this feels like just a a a snippet of a stream in the lives of these people yeah for me it's it's just a weather event it's there's a storm Mm -hmm. and then there's the two sides of the storm and you can call those swells or you can call those acts or you can call those you know proliferations of story you can do whatever you want but there's a storm in the middle there's a big catalytic event that changes everything and then there's what was before and trying to make what was before what is after by Nick, trying to force it by having it be his way, and then Jenna, having gone through that, trying to do everything she can to not be sent back there. Mm-hmm. But never really being herself, because now if she's trying to be herself, she's being herself for Nick, which is a total compromise of the um, wholehearted character that we'd gotten to know in the first half. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the 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 final moments is they're just like getting back into routine. It just feels like they've kind of come full circle. They're kind of like turning off the lights and getting ready for bed. It's like they're they're maybe have found they've gotten back into balance somehow. But it can be a very turbulent uh, life ahead of them, no matter whether they think they've weathered this storm well or not. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that ending. I don't know if it's a prison, you know, because Jenna has to do, she has to behave or else she, that same thing can happen. And, and then, you know, Falk's character is trying to create happiness. And in that forced creation of happiness, you create a prison where anything that is out of line is not supposed to be there and that has negative consequences, which is negative energy for you. And then you're kind of in your own prison of, self-imposed quote-unquote happiness in which you're suffering brutally to try to find some version of glee and um yeah i I think i i don't know how i read the film i think that's why it's a great film is that you know we've talked for almost an hour about it and i don't have any better read on how to explain it to people or i don't feel like there's really a, a good critical analysis to be had of the film itself I think that it is one of those few pieces that really is um, kind of humanity summed up in in a few hours, and you can spend time with it, and you can talk about it to try to gather your own feelings about it, but that is in no way a reflection of criticism that you can bring back to the piece um, itself. Maybe there's certain pieces of like actors or flaws or moments, but to me it's just this cohesive bit of um honesty and i don't think it's a perfect film but i I do think it's an honest one that we just don't see the likes of really ever yeah i'll throw out one reference point that i really thought was going to be an original one and then uh i read the little criterion booklet and it came up in there i'm like oh this is probably something that's been brought up a a billion times but i thought about raging bull a little bit um just for that again that kind of italian working class um milieu and you know that's obviously a boxing movie but it's largely about his kind of domestic situation his 
the idea of masculinity, his jealousy of uh, his his wife. I think he is um, he's his own guy for sure. He's not Falk by any means, but there are definitely some uh, interesting you know things to compare between those two movies. I completely agree. It's um, th- there's a certain kind of essence to. I think what Cassavetes and what early Sorsese are doing about trying to capture their experiences of this Italian family life and trying to translate it. And, um, you know, not just their family life necessarily, but like the, to be an Italian American in this city or in this, um, borough or, you know, have this background or have this particular family style. And they're just trying to communicate the truth of that, that they experienced that was carried down to them. Um, that was just their life. And, um, it's, you know, it's, I think one of the most beautifully, um, committed pieces of, um, I guess, anthropology to film, which is these, uh, Italian immigrants growing up in New York and, and the mm-hmm. rest of America, and then expressing that in the seventies the through the eighties. Yeah. And then I think you could maybe broaden it just a little bit more and just kind of think of it as a marriage movie. You know, we've talked mainly about the mental instability here um, in the working class uh, uh, world. But, you know, just to kind of think about this in relation to things like scenes from a marriage or like Before Midnight or any of those, you know, movies that I think of. I think about great movies about marriage. This is definitely one of them because for all the turbulence and turmoil it does feel like there is a lot of love in this marriage Mm -hmm. at the same time and that's what makes it so so shattering really i was very very emotional by this movie i completely agree scenes from a marriage kept popping up in my head for me and i think that in the interview and the supplementary material they they directly ask him you know what what did you think about that film they don't even call it scenes from a marriage they just say that marriage film from birdman Mm -hmm. and um he just like totally skirts around it. Like he doesn't mm. say anything about it. And I, I was very uh, upset listening because I, I really wanted to hear his reflections because Cassavetes is a very uh, upfront type of guy. And um, I, I think it would have been very interesting to hear his thoughts, but I, I definitely thought about that one a lot. Uh, I think the before trilogy for me, I, I don't quite interpret in the same uh, vein. I, they're all marriage um, related storytelling through the lens format medium, but um, that trilogy has just got a lot more breathing room than the other two for me. Scenes from a marriage, you know, shot sequentially, you know, it's like six, mm. six, six or six one hour episodes or whatever it is. And then this, you know, is God, they shot like 170,000 feet of film or something crazy for this. And they spent two years working on it. Like to me, these are just and then they left it, you know, so it was of that time. So there's just something distinct about the before trilogy for me that's different here. Mm. Oh, yeah, for sure. I use the the phrase marriage movie very loosely. And if anything, that might be more interesting for the contrast. Thinking about Before Midnight and Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy being in the Mediterranean and all of all places, the affluence and the role that plays mm-hmm. in comparison to the... Uh, working class class thing here yeah big difference in how all their emotions play out um is there anything else that you want to get to before we get to our favorite scenes only other thing i was going to throw out there is that um i feel like i often hear of the 
French filmmaker Maurice Pilat talked about uh, in relation to Cassavetes. I feel like he's even described sometimes as the French Cassavetes. And uh, this is the one where I feel like I most felt that kinship um, uh, of the Pilat films I've seen. He's more interested or he... Um, He's, he stands out as different in that he really likes ellipses. There will be these gaps in the stories, but in terms of this really unvarnished, raw um, kind of uh, observational storytelling, I think there's a really interesting kinship there um, that's, I don't know, just, just worth noting because it's cool. Um, and... I think I had one more thing, but I forgot. So let's do favorite scenes. Well, I'm totally unfamiliar with that director. Can you say his name again? Uh, Maurice Piala. And what's what's uh, one or a couple of his best films, if if I like this? Oh, um, I, uh, Lulu is a good one with uh, Gerard Depardieu and Isabelle Huppert. Um, she is like a, uh, a slightly like a middle class woman. He's a working class guy. They kind of develop a relationship. It's a, it's a romance somewhat similar in its milieu. It's obviously in France. Um, there's one that's very much about a troubled relationship called They Will Not or They Shall Not Grow Old. I, I'm either I think I'm getting that mixed up with that's the Peter name. Jackson's that's the Peter Jackson movie. I think it's They Will not grow old it's something it's a variation very, of that like, yeah yeah okay. yeah which is about um a, a, a relationship a very troubled abusive relationship um that uh just has some overlapping sensibilities um i know some more um sandrine bonaire is really good uh yeah all really good stuff i'll have to give you those my ball because that's someone who i have tons of blind spots from that i've never heard of yeah um but favorite scene michael pick one and try to figure out what a scene is in this film it's hard i really think of shots i think i've cheated multiple times on recent episodes and really just going to shots but i mean some of the more striking shots for me are when they're on that bed in the dining room and you get those shots to feel a little more poetic versus everything that's so kind of uh realistic uh documentary like where rollins was laying on the bed and she's kind of like stretching her hands up in the air and the camera is not really looking down on her from like a bird's eye view but it's kind of looking like across the bed um those moments are really i think really beautiful shots um there are a couple of those that that just really kind of took my breath away i really love those um what about you mine is actually in the same exact vein Mm. It's, um, and it's really just very brief. It's when she jumps in bed on top of him mm. and she's wearing socks and it's from that same kind of angle and she's just kind of laying sideways on top of him, not entirely on top of him, but like her legs are crossed over his legs and she's face down and her feet are kind of in the air. She's wearing, you know, dirty socks that maybe have holes in them and they're just sharing a moment together while things are kind of quiet. They're just having a mm. moment. And it's just this beautiful scene that, like, if you if you just pause and you look at it, you're just like, this is um, a moment in between where two people in love are trying to um, share that love in between their busy lives. Yeah. And it's, it's really terrific. And that was A Woman Under the Influence. <laughs> they fucked up that ending. <laughs> and now. And that's another one in the can. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> now you don't.